scripture uses a variety of images for Jesus. It calls him the rock upon which our faith is founded or the vine in whom and to whom we are attached. He calls himself the way. And scripture calls him the bridegroom. But one of the most endearing images or imageries of Jesus is that of the Good Shepherd, which appears here in John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. In a largely industrialized culture, where most of us live in cities and have little, little connection with the land and little connection with farming, we tend to look at the shepherd as more remote and even at times romantic, especially if we have nativity plays where we see shepherds in clean linen and turbans and staffs and so on. They look rather romantic. But the life of a shepherd was different from how it is depicted. It was essentially a life of total commitment. There were no holidays or vacations for shepherds. There were those who ex experienced the extremity of temperature, soaring heat in the day and at night, cold, great cold. They were seen largely, at least by the rabbis and the Pharisees, as unclean. Because, of course, they were involved with animals and they also had very little time to spend in religious duties. Theirs was a life of difficulty and there was a life of danger because often they had to protect their flock from marauding wild animals. Jesus takes this imagery of the shepherd and applies it to himself, not because in every sense there is a correspondence between him and shepherds, but in the essential details with regards to the work of the shepherd, he typifies the work of Christ. The major task of the shepherd was of providing for the needs of the sheep, of protecting them from dangers, and also, thirdly, of leading them to pasture. And Jesus Christ, therefore, is a picture of the shepherd because it is he who provides for the needs of his people, who protects us from danger, and leads us into the pasture, the celestial city. Now, our Lord Jesus, when he draws upon this imagery of the shepherd, he is, in fact, drawing upon an Old Testament idea where God was depicted as the shepherd of Israel. And we know that, for example, in Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. This is how the psalmist begins. He himself was a shepherd, but he says, the Lord is my shepherd. This description of God the shepherd, was also used of kings. And the kings of Israel were seen as shepherds. They were rulers, but they were shepherds because they had to guide and to protect and to provide for their sheep. But God in the Old Testament is depicted as the great shepherd of his people. And particularly in the prophetic literature, writers like Isaiah the prophet cast God as the king shepherd. And so you have in Isaiah 40, 10 to 11, where it says, Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. So there is a kingly nature of the shepherd. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carries them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young in Isaiah 40, 10 to 11. So the Lord is both the ruler of his people and the shepherd who carries his lamb in his bosom. In the Old Testament, the idea of a shepherd is applied, as I said, to the kings, but is also applied to the spiritual leaders. And particularly in books like Ezekiel and Zechariah, the Lord 
takes the spiritual leaders, the spiritual shepherds of Israel to task because they were abusing the sheep. And so in Ezekiel 30 verse 4, the Lord says, I am against the shepherd and I will require my flock at their hand. The spiritual leaders were gouging the people, taking things from them, not caring for their souls. And the Lord says, I'm against them because they're abusing my sheep. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord promises that he will send another shepherd. I, he says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. But by the time Ezekiel prophesied of a shepherd named David who was coming, David had already passed from the historical scene. So it is therefore a messianic shepherd, a shepherd who comes from the line of David. And he says, I will establish my shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And so when Jesus says here in John chapter 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd, we must see a link first of all to God the great shepherd of his people, and to David, because he is the messianic shepherd who has long been prophesied in the scripture, who comes to provide, to protect, and to guide his people. Now in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, we have a three-part division. We have verses 1 to 6, which is a parable, a parable that Jesus gives of a sheep pen, and sheep in the pen, and robbers uh, breaking in, and so on. Then we have the explanation of the parable of the sheep pen in verses 7 and 10, where Jesus does not explain every detail of this parable in verses 1 to 6, but takes out key, key elements of the parable. And so he takes the door and identifies himself in verses 7 to 10 as the door to the sheep pen, that entrance into eternal life and into the presence of God can only occur through him. And then in verses 11 to 18, he takes the second element from the parable, that of the shepherd, and identifies himself not only as a door, but as the good shepherd. It is this, then, that I want us to look, in, this, look upon, this idea of Christ as the shepherd of his people, the good shepherd. First of all, in verse 11, we find that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, and he is a good shepherd primarily because he lays down his life for his sheep. Hear then the word of our Lord. I am the good shepherd in verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Jesus begins by identifying himself as the good shepherd. And he calls himself good. Callous here is to be seen in an ethical sense. That is, he's denying on one hand that there is anything evil in him as the leader of his people. Positively, he's affirming that he possesses all moral perfection. He's good. That he is characterized by moral perfection, by kindness and by love and by purity. That all that he does on behalf of his sheep is good. But callous has another definition. It refers to that which is outwardly, visibly beautiful and attractive. And Jesus Christ is a good shepherd. Not only is he morally pure, but he is externally attractive. You see, it, one writer says it is, it is possible to be morally upright and yet repulsive. So Jesus is the good shepherd in character, in nature, but he's visibly and outwardly attractive in form. He's a good shepherd. But we need to understand that when the writer says, when our Lord says, I am the good shepherd, this is not merely an ethical statement about his character, about his intent and purpose for his people. It is a contrastive statement. Because what he's doing here is contrasting himself with the false shepherd of Israel. And thus we must read chapter 9 of John and chapter 10 together. Well, what is happening in chapter 9 of John? In chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, we have this man born blind whom the disciples thought that his parents had committed some sin. And Jesus made mud 
and put it on his eyes and tell them to go and wash and this fellow sees. And so there are people, when he comes back, people are saying, well, we know this guy. Wasn't he the one sitting and begging? And I said, no, no, he resembles him, but it's not the guy. So the guy couldn't take it anymore. He says, well, I, it's me. I am the fellow. And I said, well, what happened to you? He said, there was a man who told me, who put mud in my eye, telling me to go and wash, and I went and washed, and I am now seeing. The Pharisees called the fellow up. And I said, well, what happened to you? And he tells them the same story which he had told the folks. But they wouldn't believe it. Well, they're saying, surely that man is not of God because he would not have been working on the Sabbath by healing you. And the man says, well, I don't know whether he is from God or not or whether he's from God or not, but I know that once I was blind, but now I see that existentially something has occurred and has changed in my life. I was blind, but now I see. So they said, we'll glorify God. Meaning, agree with us. Tell us the truth. He's not of God. And when this, this poor blind man, or formerly blind man, refused to agree with the Pharisees' assessment of Jesus, they cast him out of the temple, meaning they excommunicated him. You never come back here again. He's put outside of the religious community. This is how they, they, they treat the broken and the bruised in Israel. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd, it must be read in contrast to those rapacious, evil shepherds of Israel who abuse and injure the people of God. But here in our text, when Jesus says he is a good shepherd, he moves surprisingly to describe himself in terms of what he means by the good shepherd. It is not only in this gospel of John that Jesus Christ is presented as shepherd. Because we saw, for example, in Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, how the folks there quoted Micah chapter 5, that a ruler will come out of Bethlehem to shepherd God's people. We see ideas in the Gospels of Jesus Christ as being shepherd because when, we see, when he saw the multitude coming to him, we are told he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. He's a shepherd who rejoices over the one sheep that was lost and now found, and what is now found, the sheep that has repented. But here Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Another of the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. And he particularly centers upon this notion that he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. This is tremendous stuff. Because whereas ordinary shepherds were intent on preserving their lives in the interest of the sheep, Jesus gives his life for the sheep. This verse then demonstrates that Jesus Christ gave himself for his sheep. And his self-giving must be seen first as a votive offering as a dedicated spiritual offering to God. He says in the text, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He gives his life as a votive offering, as a sacrificial offering to God. That he came to be that lamb, to give himself completely to satisfying the justice and the wrath of God on behalf of his people, he gave himself, all of himself, unto death. Unlike the hireling, un unlike the, the employed servant who takes care of the sheep but flees at the earliest sign of danger, Jesus gives up his life in death. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Not only was his self-giving a votive offering, or sacrifice, it was a voluntary offering. Because he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives. It is the verb is active. It is not that his life was merely taken from him, but he lays down his life. And you will find that this emphasis upon the voluntary nature of his sacrifice for his sheep is repeated. Verse 11, you see that. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 15, 
of the text. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. And if that is not clear that his offering is voluntary, then in verse 18 it is stated unequivocally. He says, No one takes it from me. But I lay down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. You see, our Lord is a good shepherd because he answers our need. He answers our greatest need, which is deliverance from sin. In Isaiah, the prophet says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned, each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us have turned astray. And so all of us, that is God's people, he has laid our iniquity on him. It is the commentator Oswald who says, We are like stubborn sheep, wandering from one clump of grass to another without regard for where we are coming from and where we are going. We are bent upon ourselves, interested only in satisfying our own desires. We live for our pleasure. We ignore the will of God. We've turned aside. We no longer live under the rule of God. We will not submit ourselves to him. We are simply bent upon satisfying self. We all are like sheep, have gone astray. This is a damning indictment of man in sin that we have abandoned God. We talk about a God-forsaken world, but the Bible does not believe in a God-forsaken world. The Bible believes in a world that has forsaken God. We all like sheep, deliberately, willfully, have turned aside from God, and so Jesus comes as the good shepherd. We are reminded by Peter that Christ also suffered once with sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You see, his sacrifice for his people was not only vote on votive offering and a voluntary offering, it was a vicarious offering. For again, the text says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life. And you see that preposition for Uper in the original, it means on behalf of. It means instead of. It is a preposition that is used throughout the New Testament to refer to the vicarious or the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. That essentially what we argue is that Christ did not die for sins, for his own sins, because he had none. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled, and separate from sin as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, 26. But he gave himself for, on behalf of, instead of the sins of his people. In John 15, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lays down his life for his friends. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins. We need to understand that the death of Christ then was vicarious. It was in our place for us. It was a ransom. And here is the reason why we cannot look at the cross as merely a potential remedy for sin. The cross must be understood as a real and definite payment to God for our sins. That something was accomplished at the cross. A ransom was given. A payment was made to God. And that payment was made on behalf of the sheep, his people. And so he redeems them. There is particularity to the death of Christ. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life, lays down his life for the sheep. But Jesus is the good shepherd, not only because he lays down his life for the sheep, 
But when he says he's the good shepherd, it signifies not only does he give himself for his people, but that he knows his sheep and they are known by him. This is where we find a second statement, a repetition of what is said in verse 11. Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. But this time he explains why he's the good shepherd, not simply because he has given his life to deliver his people from death and from judgment and from hell. But in verse 14 he says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And I'm known by my own. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Because he possesses knowledge. Infinite knowledge of his people. God knows all things. We say that God is omniscient. He knows all things that are actual and possible. And he knows all things in an infinite and perfect manner. There are no gaps in the knowledge of God or of the Son. So he is one who sees all things with equal vividness. And the psalmist David recognized that the knowledge of God is infinite. In Psalm 139 verses 1 and 6, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and, and are acquainted with all my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. The Lord knows his people and knows all things infinitely. But here Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd who says, and I know my sheep. The knowledge that is spoken of here is not simply an infinite knowledge, but an intimate knowledge. Very often when the scriptures speak of God knowing and knowing his people, it is used in the Hebraic sense, in the, in the sense of the the Hebrew people, where knowledge was seen as intimate. The Lord says of Israel, you only have I known. And knowledge in that sense is to be coupled with love. It is a knowledge that is rooted in love. We hear, we hear in, back in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam knew his wife. It speaks of intimacy, sexual intimacy. And so very often then, God's knowledge of his people must be seen as an intimate knowledge, not just an infinite knowledge, but an intimate knowledge, a knowledge that is rooted in love. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd because I know my sheep. And by that he means he knows them perfectly, but he knows them intimately. He knows them in a loving sense. The apostle Paul could write about this knowledge. He says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from evil. The Lord Jesus makes it clear that he knows his sheep. And they know him. They know his voice. They will not follow another. It's an amazing stuff because when you have a, a flock, well, if you have a flock of 10 sheep, you, you probably could know them. Maybe if you have 100 sheep, maybe you could all give them names. But our Lord's people is as numerous as the stars of heaven as the sand of the seashore. And yet he knows them all. He knows us all by name. He knows our hearts. If our hearts... He says, condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. He knows our weaknesses and our desires and our aspirations. He knows our needs in all their complexity. And so he reminds the disciples and his people that they are not to fear. He says, therefore do not be like them, like the Gentiles. For your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. He knows all our needs. He knows our weaknesses and he knows our sins. But he knows us with affection, with love. He says, my sheep, hear my voice and I know them. It means that he loves his people and his people know him. It's a reciprocal relationship. He knows us and we know him. We love him. We seek to delight in his presence. We seek to elevate his cause. We know him and we love him. And the writer here says, Jesus Christ 
is the good shepherd who knows his people. And, 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 and he compares the knowledge that Christ have of his people and they of him with the knowledge that he has of his father and the father has of him. And so he says, as the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's not saying that his people know him the way his father knows him. But he's saying that, 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 that knowledge that exists between him and his father and that love that exists between him and the father is in some sense comparable to analogous to the love that he has for his people. I know my sheep. Jesus Christ is a good shepherd. He knows us in every aspect and in every part of our being, with all our needs, with all our individuality, with all of our distinctions, he knows us all. And the amazing thing is that he knew us from eternity and still loved us. You know, if, if the Lord Jesus loved you as a son of God from eternity, it is unlikely that he will stop loving you in time. Jesus is the good shepherd because he lays down his life. But thirdly, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd not only because he knows his sheep, but because he gathers his sheep. And that's what you find in verse 16, where the Lord says, and other sheep I have. This is the good shepherd who, who first of all, lays down his life for his sheep, who knows his people intimately, and thirdly, who says, he gathers his sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Well, who are the other sheep that he has? Well, it's referring to Gentiles. He has sheep who are Jewish. The gospel began among the Jewish people. Christ came from the stock of Judah. He was a Jew. And the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem. And then throughout Judea and then throughout the world. But he has, he says, another flock. That is, other sheep. He has other sheep, meaning Gentiles. And notice he says, them also I must bring. The term they bring really is literally to lead. Them I will lead. Our Lord is a good shepherd who does not drag his people, who does not beat them up, but he goes ahead of them and he leads them. And now here our Lord then speaks first about the extensive scope of his flock. In a sense, you see, we find in Jesus the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Because the Lord in Genesis 12 said to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Christ has come now as the seed of Abraham. And it is in him by faith that all the nations and all peoples are saved. I'm not arguing, I'm not suggesting that every person on the planet will be saved. I do not advance universalism. But the Lord has an extensive people that extends beyond the boundaries of Israel. It involves Jews and Gentiles, people from every region and nation and tribe and tongue. And so Jesus says he's a good shepherd who will gather his sheep. It means from out of every nation and out of every people. He says, I have, he says, and another sheep I have which are not of this Jewish fold. Them also I must bring. So we notice the extensive nature of his flock. We see, secondly, that the flock will respond in obedience because he says in the text, he says, these I must bring and they will hear my voice. And a, a telling sign that one belongs to the flock of Christ is that they hear the call of Christ. They hear his voice. It doesn't mean just that they identify the sound of his voice, but that they respond to hear then is synonymous with responding. You see, the Lord is indicating that he will call his sheep. He will call them with a mighty and a powerful call. A call that will quicken and will give life. Like the call that was addressed to Lazarus. When the Lord Jesus came to his graveside. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And that call that God addressed to him, or Christ addressed to him, was invested with divine power, that same call raised him from the dead. And similarly in a spiritual sense, when the Lord Jesus saves his people, he calls them with a powerful call from darkness to light, 
from death to life. He calls them into fellowship or union with himself to inherit the blessing of heaven, to, in, to know true spiritual liberty and peace and holiness. You see, the, the flock of Christ are not only extensive, they respond in obedience. And third, the flock of Christ is unified. For the, the, the text reminds us, they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock. Though they may come from different nationalities and different regions and have different cultural distinctives, there will be one flock and one shepherd. We need to know that even though we may be different in so many areas, if we are in Christ, we are one flock, one people. We have one Lord, one Christ, one shepherd who guides us. We are united in Jesus Christ. Here the Lord says, I am the good shepherd. And I'm the good shepherd precisely because I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd because I know my sheep and they know me. And I'm the good shepherd because I'm the one gathering my sheep. I'm the one bringing my church together and fulfilling my will and my purpose. The reality that Jesus is the good shepherd has great import for the Christian life. Let me say first that since Jesus is the good shepherd, it calls us to a life of dependence. You know, in ancient times, people viewed life as lived in the grip of merciless fate. They considered themselves to be caught up in what they saw as the wheel of fortune, this massive wheel in which they were enmeshed which kept on turning, and so the wheel of fortune turns. It brings them to the height of success. But that same wheel plunged them to the nadir of despair and failure. And it kept on turning. It was turning inexorably, inevitably, from which they could not extricate themselves. But Jesus, by identifying himself as a shepherd, makes us understand that life is not controlled by some mechanistic process. See, we, even though we, we are not living in the Middle Ages, we aren't terribly liberated in our thinking because there are many still who feel that life is lived and at least life unfolds by mechanic, me mechanistic processes. We look at the trends around us. We see movements and decisions in the political sphere. We see the coursing of society. We see great evil on every side, and, and we think that we are caught up in this tremendous mesh from which we can't deliver ourselves, and there's nothing to deliver us. We have been carried along by the great stream of life, and only death can deliver us. But here, Jesus, by identifying himself as the good shepherd, reminds us that life is not guided by a process, but by a person himself. He is the good shepherd. It is he who guides our lives, who provides for us. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd, and he's guiding us along. And he is the good shepherd precisely because he gave himself for us. How do we know that this shepherd is a compassionate and gracious shepherd, the one who is worthy to lead us? It is because he gave his life. You see, Jesus was crucified in an exposed place. Marshazar says he was crucified in an exposed place of love. But I should wish to add to that he was crucified in an exposed place of shame. Stripped of his clothing and hung naked. It's only in these days people, at least civilized society, it's only in these days that civilized society think that it is good to walk around naked. At least from the garden, people have been trying to cover up. And there's good reason to cover up. But our Lord Jesus Christ was stripped naked. He was crucified in an exposed place, stripped of his dignity, of the honor and glory that he deserves. He was crucified in an exposed place because 
There was nowhere for him to hide from the wrath of God. It sought him out like a laser beam and drove a stake into his very heart so that he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm saying to you that our Savior suffered in an exposed place of shame and wrath and that's because he is the good shepherd who came to bear our sins. And this one who was taken the nails for us carried our grief, lifted up our sorrows, is the one who goes ahead of us and leads us on. The one who suffered and died for us indeed will do all things for your good and for his glory. He will work all things because, you see, he is a loving and a compassionate shepherd who loves you so much that he has given himself for you. He is the shepherd who knows you most intimately, who knows you individually, who knows you in all of your needs and all of your weaknesses, and who has involved himself in an intimate relationship with you. He knows you by name. You're not just a number. We we live in a world where anonymity is celebrated. You, You can work in the same office with somebody for 40 years, live in the same neighborhood for 50 years, and you retire, and you die, and apart from a few friends and family, you pass the scene unnoticed and unmourned. You see, all the society tells us is that we don't really matter. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. I know you, he says. And you are special. I have set you apart because I love you and you are my sheep and I know you and you know me. In fact, we need to understand that our personal relationship with Jesus will outlast this life because in the age to come, Jesus will also maintain a personal relationship with you. And you know that because you read in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2 verse 17, the Lord says, He who has an ear to ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I'll give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name, written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I give him a white stone. And on the stone, I'll give him a new name. That nobody knows but the person who receives it. What, what is our Lord saying? It's pictorial. It's not likely you're going to receive in heaven a white stone. But what is he saying? He's saying the Lord is going to give you a new name. You're going to have a relationship with him that nobody else in all of heaven has. It's a particular, particularly designed relationship. Just you and the Lord. Because he knows you. And he cares. And he's interested in having a personal relationship with you. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who gave his life and who knows his people. And you know what? He not only knows your needs, he knows exactly how to help you. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust for punishment for the day of judgment. He knows you so much. He knows exactly how many strands of hair you have on your head or how much you do not have. He knows all of it. He knows how many went down the drain this morning. That's the good news. I mean, who, 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 who's bothered about how many strands of hair we lose? But the Lord is. He knows all of that. Is intricately involved in your life and every personal detail down to the minutiae is governed and controlled by him. He knows you and he cares and he knows how to deliver you, how to help you. And so it means that we must live in assurance. We must live with joy and gladness because we are known by our shepherd who is working all things for our good to fulfill his purposes. And one day he will wipe away every tear from your eye. 
But let me close by saying that this good shepherd demands obedience. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and I give them eternal life. And they follow me. You see, if you belong to Christ, you must know that, that there's only one infallible guide given in life. We have in our world all kinds of gurus and all kinds of guides who portray themselves as an inerrant guide to lead the simple and the ignorant through the maze and the mesh of life. But God has given us one infallible guide in Christ who says, I am the good shepherd. And if you truly belong to Jesus Christ, you must hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And if you belong to Jesus Christ today, you must hear the call of your shepherd. And you must commit yourself completely to following Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. It's an ongoing process of putting Christ ahead of everything, subduing all your loyalties and all your interests beneath Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you today to come to the true shepherd. You cannot make it in Toronto in 2017 on your own. And God never intended that you should do so. He has given you Christ who's a good shepherd who died for sinners, who knows his people, and who invites you now to come to follow him, to surrender your life to him, to turn from sin, and to turn from idols, and to turn to the living God by faith, and to commit then to make Christ chief in your life, to follow him by following his word, to make all your decisions and plans according to his will, and to look for the day when he comes. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand, because my Father is greater than all. May Jesus help you for his sake. Amen. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans in this world. That we have one who is with us, who is our Savior and our Shepherd. And we will say, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Guide us, we pray, through life. Keep us, we pray, from all harm and danger. And everything that displeases you, keep us, we pray, grounded upon your word, eyes fixed upon the prize, which is heaven and you. We pray, Father, that you would comfort us knowing that as our shepherd, you know exactly what we need and you will do it in your time. And so help us then to live reverently and obediently, to constantly be hearing your call saying, this is the way, walk in it, and help us to follow you as obedient people pleasing you and delighting in you. We ask all of this for Christ's sake. Amen. At this point, we would ask our ushers to come and collect our morning tithes and offerings. and encourage you to take this opportunity to meditate and think on Jesus Christ, our great shepherd.
We have many announcements in our bulletin. I would encourage you to read them. I would just like to highlight, however, a few. This week, as you have probably guessed by now, is our vacation Bible school, our kids' camp. Begins tomorrow, so if you cannot help, if you cannot volunteer, uh, please be in prayer for this ministry. We will have a lot of children, a lot of people in the building under the influence of a gospel. Please, please pray. Please pray that the Lord would use this opportunity to his glory. Uh, regarding kids camp, uh, you will see that uh, there is a meeting directly after the morning service in the Greenway Chapel for, uh, for volunteers. So please, please be there. This will be one of the last meetings. So be there. I would like to also point out, because of that meeting, those children who use the van to get back and forth, uh, please meet upstairs and not in the Greenway Chapel. There is an important parking notice in your bulletin. I please recommend that you read it, because the parking lot will be used for activities during VBS. Uh, There is a women's outing coming up the 22nd of July, which comes up quickly. Please read uh, the bulletin insert that you have. And if you are a woman, please plan on attending that. At this point, I'll ask Murad to come and make a further announcement about the, uh, the Widows of Yurgachefe project that we support here at the church. James 1.27 reminds us, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit Widows, orphans, and widows in their trouble, and to keep one spotted from the world, unspotted from the world. Uh, our church here at Jarvis Street Baptist Church, we sponsor a, a number of widows and widows of Yerushalayim. And if you have your insert, that picture actually—sorry, wrong insert. This picture actually at the front of the insert is the widows that we sponsor. That we've uh, purchased some cattle for them. And what we're doing is we want to sponsor more. We want to support these specific widows. Some of the uh, cattle have died and, and, and moved on. And so we're, there's three ways that you could sponsor this ministry. And they're listed on the back there behind your insert. Number one, you could go online, GoFundMe. So if you don't use a lot of change, you, you don't want to give an offering, there's an online method you could pay there through that method. Not the most recommended method, method but it is one of them. Secondly, we have... A, these piggy banks, these cow piggy banks. And what you're going to simply do is you can put your change, you can put bills, whatever you want, and you will take it. And we're going to be doing this drive for three more months. So for the, up, up until October 8th. Thanksgiving, October 8th, we'll also be having a special offering for these widows. And so with these three methods, we're hoping to sponsor more widows as well as support these other widows and may God use that to help them. And this is what we are called to do as believers in the, in, in the Lord. On a second important note, there's another important announcement. On last May, we had the privilege of electing one more elder and, one more, and two more assistant pastors. And uh, some of you are not there, but we're going to actually call them up. Our pastor, Gong Wong. Brother Nathan Nado and David Joe, if you could come up, and we're going to call the elders as well, and we're going to be praying for them uh, that the Lord would bless their ministry here at Jarvis Street in the, in the months and years to come. This is Gong Wong. So these are the two assistant pastors, Nathan and David. We're going to ask you to kneel. We're going to ask the elders to lay hands on them. I think we should leave. So you can go across. You can go across. Yeah. So you guys to kneel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you because you give gifts to the church. And we thank you for these three men that you have given to us. We praise you for your kindness and grace to your people, and we ask, Lord, that you will be with Gong. We praise you for his service in the seminary as our registrar, but now as he joins the pastoral team, we pray that you would pour out your blessing upon him and cause him to be a blessing to your people. We pray that you would help him and his family, that together we may serve you in the Lord. 
And we thank you for bringing to us Nathan. We thank you, Father, for him and for Sarah, and we commit them to thee. We pray, Lord, that you provide for them. And we'd ask, O God, that they might be a great encouragement to us as they've already been, and that we might be a great encouragement to them both. And so, Lord, we also thank you for David. We bless you for the gifts and abilities you have given him. We thank you for his willingness to use them here to strengthen your people, to build them up in the faith. We pray, Lord, that you might build him up and that we ask that for all of these men, as they serve here, they may be able to serve with gladness. So we'd ask, O Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, protect them from the evil one, keep them from scandal and from shame, and cause their lives to be a bright, shining light before us, that they may walk in holiness and in purity. And Lord, that like Joseph, whatever he did, it was said that the Lord was with him, so that whatever they do may be said that the Lord is with them. So sanctify, bless, and encourage them, we pray, for Jesus' name. Amen.